Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. One of the highlights of my career was hosting a two-day Jobs and Skills Summit in the Great Hall in Parliament House, Canberra. The first day of the summit was surprisingly dominated by women, starting with a keynote address that set the tone for an impactful summit. Our guest today gave that address. Danielle Wood is the CEO of the Grattan Institute, where she heads a team of leading policy thinkers. She holds an honours degree in economics and two master's degrees, one in economics and one in competition law. She's also on the government's Economic Equality Task Force. In this episode, we talk about giving a big speech, the policy ideas which could transform your life, and how to transition from academia to the public stage. Danielle Wood, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thank you for having me. You virtually became a household name last year after a brilliant opening address to the Jobs and Skills Summit in Canberra. So I was sitting quite near you. I've been dying to ask, were you nervous? Hopefully you couldn't see me shaking. <laughs> no, well, funnily enough, for that one, just like many speeches I do, I actually find I'm more nervous in the lead up. And then I sort of get a strange sense of calm descend as I actually sort of stand up to deliver it. And I think it's probably like many things in life, you sort of, you do the hard work. And then once you're there, there's nothing more you can do and you just sort of try and have fun with it in the moment. Yes. And I have said exactly the same thing because it was, and I hope we never have this conversation again, but it was striking that first morning, emceeing it and having you as the keynote speaker. And then followed immediately by a panel of all women and not, and not there to talk just about women's economic issues, to talk about jobs and the economy more broadly. I think it really set the tone for the, the whole event. And I, it, was, it was Michelle O'Neill, I think, on that first panel that made the contrast with the, was it the 83 yes. summit where there was a single woman that's in right. the room? You know, so an extraordinary shift. I think that's worth celebrating. And just for our listeners, when Danielle got up to speak, there was all of the cabinet on one side of her, every premier in the country and a bunch of captains of industry, every union represented. It was not a small stage, which is why I'm, I'm asking, because I know many women do feel imposter syndrome, they do feel nerves, they do lack confidence. And to be asked to give that keynote address was an incredible honour for anyone. And so I guess I just wondered whether you went through those emotions or whether, as you say, that calm hit and it came and went. Yeah, so I, I think you probably go through the emotions in advance, as I said, and it was absolutely a huge honour. And, you know, I, I was very conscious of the fact you only get that shot once, right? Like I will never speak in a room again with that collection of people. It was an absolutely extraordinary 
mix. So for me, it's just making sure you're prepared. The other thing is I do a lot of speaking as part of my job. You know, I sort of do 80 speeches a year. So like anything in life, um, the, the more you do it, the less you get hit by those sort of nerves. 80 speeches a year is my idea of hell. That <laughs> it's is, too many. That, that is was last insane. year. I'm trying to do fewer this year <laughs> because that is just, uh, yeah, that is, <laughs> it's a lot of time. <laughs> I really don't enjoy public speaking. So, oh, well, you wouldn't have known it. <laughs> which is, which is the work, you know, doing the preparation before you get up on stage is the only way to get through it. Let's move on from that. Can you tell the audience a little bit about the thesis of your speech? Because it, it really dominated the two days. And I guess in some ways, you know, a lot of what you said is still dominating the public debate. Sure. I mean, and the idea of it, as, as the opening speeches of it, just sort of be very broad and to set the context for what came. But really the way I would think about it is there were sort of two goals. One was to inform and to talk a little bit about what the economy looks like and, and where it's going. And the second was to try and galvanise change and talk about all the things that we need to do if Australia is going to prosper in the next decade and beyond. So when, when it comes to informing, when you think about the modern economy, the point I really wanted to drive home is it's a story about services. 80% of jobs are in the services sector. And this, I think, just gets lost so often. Like if you were an alien and you came down and you looked at our political discourse you looked at all the photo ops that you see politicians taking, you would think we had a manufacturing and construction economy. And that, you know, what I call kind of 1970s thinking still drives a lot of policy decision making. Um, The way we set up our training system, the way we remunerate our care workforce, the way we respond to recessions. Uh, So to me, it was actually a great opportunity to explain, actually, the economy looks really different now. So we need to think about policy differently. We're also an economy in transition. So as we move towards net zero, we should not underestimate, you know, what a transformation that is. And, and we need to be taking those steps now. Uh, and I also talked a lot about the digital revolution, which is another area where Australia has been lagging on a global scale, but we will continue to transform the way we live and work over coming decades. So that's the kind of information. The thesis was that we need to step up as a country in order to address this. So this is things like transforming our education system. You know, one of the things that just breaks my heart when I look at policy data is the fact that educational outcomes in terms of numeracy, in terms of literacy at our schools has gone backwards over the past two decades. You know, not just compared to other countries, but compared to our own performance over time. So we need to be better delivering those foundational skills as well as having better functioning training systems, et cetera. Second, we need to tap into the huge amount of potential that's in our workforce. Uh, and this is a topic I know that's very close to your heart, Helen, but you know, we have some of the best educated women in the world. We have a huge numbers that say that they would like to work more, but are constrained from doing so, um, often because of accessibility and affordability of, of childcare, often because of gender norms that says women will be the ones that flex their hours to deal with care for children or elderly parents. Uh, We have similar challenges for older people, for people with a disability. And all of that means is we're missing out on that potential talent pool and that's a handbrake on growth. Uh, And thirdly, I talked a lot about economic dynamism, which is this strange phenomenon that we've seen not just in Australia but around the world that in the past 20 or so years, 
economies have become more stagnant. So less entrepreneurialism, fewer people changing jobs. And the solutions to that are a lot harder, but it's addressing on a number of fronts, looking at how we promote competition in the economy, looking at what's happened to house prices, which can be a big barrier for young people taking on risk in their careers, addressing the very low rate of social security payments and, and, and job seeker, which again, stops people from taking risks if you know that you're going to be forced into very desperate situation if you were to lose your job. There's a whole range of different things that we need to think about as a country to have a really healthy and thriving economy that works for everyone. I'm actually in Melbourne to think about the onboarding of 600 women to the Future Women Jobs Academy who are over 40 and just starting to kind of go deep into what that looks like and how we can deliver for them and how we can encourage employers to think differently about who they hire, especially when there's a a capacity for flexible work. Many of our listeners are starting out on their leadership journey, so they're working in organisations in various industries. What sort of policies do you think are circulating and ideas in your world that might have a direct impact on the working lives of young women in this country, you know, in the future? Look, I mean, I think increasingly the recognition is that flexibility is needed, but flexibility isn't something just for women. So this is really important. So this is about flexibility around where we work. And and this is, you know, one of the wonderful things, frankly, to come out of COVID has been the, the shift towards hybrid work for, for those industries where that's possible. And of course, not all jobs, that is the case. But I think employers are going to find that that has to be, I speak to sometimes old school bosses that say, I want everyone back five days a week. I'm like, okay, you can do that, but you'll have to pay a wage premium. All the surveys show that people value this. And therefore, if you're not going to offer it, you're going to have to compensate them in other ways. Because they won't work for you. They won't work for you. Mm. Yep. So it's about a 7% wage premium is what the, the survey suggests. So if you want to demand people come into the office all the time, then you have to expect to, to pay them more. So that flexibility is there. A concern is, of course, that if it's just women that take it up and FaceTime still matters for promotional opportunity, that it actually increases disparity in outcomes for, for men and women. So I think that's something employers have to be really careful about, making hybrid work but not entrench existing disadvantage facing women. Uh, and then I think the thing that companies have actually been leading on, frankly, policymakers are lagging on, is parental leave and really encouraging men to, to be more involved in care of children in those early years. And w- what we know from all the research as well as the overseas experience is when you have men more involved in you know, the first year of the child's life, they tend to stay more involved in, in care when the child's four, when the child's seven, when the child's ten. So you set up patterns that continue for the whole of that that child's life. How have you found the transition from being in academia and writing reports and being acknowledged within your industry to actually taking a more of a a leadership role in the country beyond just your specialisation and your field? Uh, Look, it, it is challenging and, you know, I still really love being, you know, there in the research. But, you know, I've always seen what I do as trying to be an economics communicator. So that that was true when I worked in government. It was true when I was in different positions at the Grattan Institute. We take ideas that are complex and often academic researchers can be hard to, to penetrate. 
and try and distill it down, bring the best bits of it and bring the best ideas from it, but distill it down in a way that, that's digestible. So I think that skill set in a way is still what I'm doing, just to a broader audience. Did you have to work on that skill set? Did you identify it as something that you needed to get really good at? Or was that just a natural skill that you you brought to research? Uh, Look, I think it was always something that I had and I enjoyed. Um, So I did one of those career tests when I was at high school. You know, you sort of, you fill out the 500 questions and it pumps out. You should be a nurse. It said I should be a science journalist. Um, Yeah. And then when I looked back at it, I was like, actually, that's not a million miles from what I do. You know, I loved science at school. I mean, economics is quite empirical and quantitative. Uh, and then it's communicating that just as as a journalist does. But, you know, as for everything, the more you do it, the better you get. We've got a fantastic in-house editor at, at Grattan that edits our pieces and, and, you know, has really taught me a lot about how do you make stories sexy? How do you create the hook? How do you simplify your language to make it engaging? So all of those things I'm constantly working on and I think you can get better at. And you look at politicians, some of them are extremely good at this. Telling a story or communicating complex ideas is not just about words. It's it's a whole presentation requirement. Have you worked on that more broadly or have you just been naturally good at standing up in front of a big group as well? Uh, look, I think I'm always working to try and improve everything. So if you do it a lot, you you get better but I always try and take feedback and and try and refine, always practice. And so that's for every one of those 80 speeches, I will literally practice doing them out loud because you get a better, more polished result. So it's not like the effort goes away. It should start to come more naturally, but you still have to work at it. We actually advise in masterclasses, people just starting out and giving presentations, that reading it aloud is one of the, the fastest ways to develop a bit of muscle memory too around mm. how speech feels. What sort of leader do you think you are or do you aspire to be? So it's a hard one. So I, I, this is not going to sound very inspirational, but to me, the most important characteristic in a leader is competence, at least as a baseline characteristic. So I, I have worked for people who on paper are very inspiring and their words are inspiring, but they don't follow through and do. So to me, at least the baseline of being a leader is setting the vision, but then delivering on time and on budget, making the trains run on time essentially is, you know, something that I've always tried to to do in that leadership position hopefully do it with a sort of a passion and an energy and an authenticity. The other thing, certainly in terms of leadership of an organisation, I think is incredibly important is to be both accessible and engaged with with the staff. So I think organisational change works best and is certainly more enduring when it comes from the ground up. So I try and listen to, to people's ideas in all positions across the organisation, understand where they think we can do better and then actually work with them to try and get that change. And I've seen that just work so well at Grattan. You know, so many of the ideas are actually coming, you know, from our graduate who comes in with a different way of thinking, you know, more up-to-date skills in a lot of areas and, and we'll see 
you know, ways in which we can do things better. And I always make sure that I'm sort of tapped into to that. Do you make time to, to talk to younger members of the team? Yeah, so I have monthly meetings with all the, the junior staff, not with the, the senior management don't come along. So I will sit in the room for an hour you know, I'll talk to them about where I think some challenges are going, but they will chair the meetings, they will come with their agenda items. So that's a very formal way in which we do it. And, you know, what I found is they're very willing to to be quite open about things that are on their mind. And sometimes that's confronting, but, you know, it you want to be challenged and it actually means that they feel that they can raise those things and they know that I will be listening and, you know, we'll be trying to take them into account when making decisions about the direction of the organisation. I also obviously do it on a lot more informal basis and go for coffee with people from, from time to time. Every new starter will, will sit down and go for coffee with. You know, it's a, it's a smaller organisation, so it's more possible to do those things. But I think, you know, organisations of any size should be finding ways to tap into the thinking of the teams because they're the ones that actually see what's going on. When you get feedback in those sessions that is confronting, how do you manage that? Are you good at managing that? Or are there moments where you go, oh, do I have to listen to that again? You know, what I try and work on is not being defensive. So I think, you know, that it's a very natural human reaction when someone says something. This is basically saying, you know, you haven't done a good job at X and you think, oh, well, you don't understand that. But that's not great for for drawing out people and and also it's not great because you're probably not hearing the content of what they're saying so that's something that I constantly try and work on is just listening and not rushing to to try and defend the, the status quo very good advice given the nature of your work we interviewed Mel Silver not so long ago from, from Google and she was fascinating because she has, I think it's monthly, a thinking day where she just turns everything off, stays at home, walks in the park, but just that's her thinking day. Do you have thinking days or an equivalent? Yeah, so I, I do try and block out in my calendar time for deep work. So if I'm working on a report and I still, have, I still do my own research, I have a team that I work with doing research you know, I will block out two, sometimes three days for each report to have a really deep run at it. Uh, because, you know, frankly, if you're just trying to fit in half an hour here and there between meetings, it's not it's not quality thinking. I also do a lot of more general thinking, you know, the sort of, you know, like the Job Summit speech, where's the world going? What's happening in the economy? You know, I'll try and block out a day to to put together slides for for presentations when I'm thinking about those issues and reading a lot of contemporary work about those issues. So I do try and, and then I will try and then jam um, all the short-term work, the meetings, bits and pieces on the other days. So I, I do try and make sure that I've got time blocked out at various points in my year for that sort of deep work. How common is it for people like me to turn up in your day and stop you in the corridor and say, Danielle, I need to know what the future of blah looks like? Because we all assume that you're deep thinking all the time and have all the answers. Yeah, and that that is hard. So I think dealing with media within that kind of, you know, what I described as kind of a neat <laughs> blocking of the calendar is very difficult because it's extremely responsive. 
So, you know, people will say, okay, I need you to come on the radio and talk about X in 10 minutes' time. Can you do a TV interview this afternoon? So I've I've learned when I'm trying to protect those deep work days, I just say no. But, you know, you don't want to say no too often because people will stop coming to you. And as I said, you know, communicating about the economy and about policy is a really critical part of my job. So on most days, I have to just go with the flow and, and be flexible and try and say something sensible about whatever it is random thing that <laughs> someone wants to talk about today. <laughs> well, we could talk about how to manage media requests for quite some time because that's a whole skill in itself. But I'm going to move on and, and ask, what sort of challenges have you had to overcome to get to the position you're in at the moment? Look, it is, you know, economics remains a very male-dominated field, both in terms of the, you know, more men studying economics at university than, than women and then a very leaky pipeline. So I think, you know, when I, when I sort of started out, it was that challenge of finding your voice in, in male-dominated rooms, which can be hard. So, you know, I've certainly been at meetings where I'll be, there'll be 10 people around the table and I was the only woman. That is becoming increasingly rarer. As I sort of got through that and got higher up, I mean, I think I still sometimes get gendered feedback. So sort of, you know, critiques of the the way you talk or being told I smile too much, you know, things oh, wow. that just, um, you know, not constructive not and, and things that are essentially pointing out that you look different to the leaders that they're used to seeing. And I think that can be magnified in the public domain but more generally in the public domain, particularly the sort of work that I do where you're weighing in in contentious debates. You know, I work in tax policy. So if I'm out there talking about why we should wind back superannuation tax concessions, if I'm talking about inheritance taxes, you know, very sort of sensitive topics, you certainly need to be resilient because you will get a lot of strong feedback almost in, in, in real time. Actually, I did a um, <laughs> talkback radio interview on inheritance taxes and caller after caller. And at one point the host said, you know, this is incredible. We have never had so many phone calls and not one of them agrees with you. <laughs> and, you know, there's something <laughs> absolutely yep. soul destroying about that when you think you've made a very compelling and rational case. But Policy change is a slow game and, you know, getting out there, telling the story, copying that feedback, you know, is, is part, is, it's challenging, but it's, it's part of the game. Well, I came through an era of media where it was widely accepted that women wouldn't be listened to on radio at all. So all male, all radio hosts were men. And it's only in recent years that we start to see women appointed as hosts of radio shows. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Yep. Something, you know, the pitch of women's voices yep. would be deeply offensive yep. to the population. I mean, Yep. And you'll still find courses, you know, online that'll tell you to lower the pitch of your voice to be taken more seriously. Goodness me. I want to just go back to, because I think this is helpful, how did you find your voice in meetings where you were the only woman? I wish I had a good answer, but to be honest, I think it just came with greater depth of knowledge and understanding that I had something to contribute in those rooms. So I think, you know, it's quite natural actually to have a reticence early on in your career when you know less than others. In fact, I'm probably more worried about the people that, um, you know, are trying to dominate the conversation when they don't necessarily know as much. But 
it was probably a gradual process for me. There was no sort of silver bullet. It was gradually building confidence, becoming the expert in the room in certain areas and therefore creating, feeling that I had that space to speak up. And did you feel like you had to do, how many degrees have you got? I'm just going to count them up. <laughs> did you feel like you had to do extra study to prove that you deserve to be heard in these spaces? Uh, no, I, I did extra study because, I, because I'm a, a nerd and I <laughs> wanted to and I enjoyed that. Oh, look, that may be partly true of the, the final degree I did, which was the Masters in, in Law or Competition Law. I was working at that point at the ACCC, the, the competition regulator, which is a mix of lawyers and economists. And I did find it frustrating having lawyers uh, <laughs> condescend to me regularly. And I thought, oh, just, I might just go and get a degree in this and see what it's all about. And it's basically, oh, I call it reading comprehension for grown-ups. If you can read and you can follow an argument, you can do law. <laughs> that is fantastic. I suspected that you went, no, I can just you know, I'd just be better qualified than anyone well, in the room. They all thought they were economists, so I, I figured I'd pretend to be a lawyer. <laughs> Lawyers tend to have that effect on people, don't they? Moving to today when you are CEO of an organisation and a lot of the challenges of being a woman in your field have fallen aside, I'm assuming you're still seeing some challenges. What did they look like? I don't really, I would have to say on a day-to-day basis, I, I think the challenge that I face are probably generally the challenges that people in this type of role will face. I'm just very conscious of the challenges that still exist for others. So I still hear from young women all the time that feel they're talked over, their ideas aren't taken as seriously, they're overlooked for promotions. You know, even though I might not, you know, in a way I think I've got to a level where it doesn't hold me back or certainly at least I'm not conscious of sort of seeing sexism in my interactions anymore. I'm aware that that's not true for for everyone. So I still have a lot of fire in the belly in terms of, of, of making change. And I'm very conscious of the you know, being in the public domain, you know, helping hopefully provide a, a role model for those women and, and helping those women where they, they sort of reach out for advice. What sort of leaders do you admire? So, I mean, I, I probably admire in others the, the, the things that I was trying to achieve in myself, which is competence and then a sort of real passion and, and energy for, for what they do. So, look, I come from, I'm a economist, woman economist. So, you know, I, when I look around the world, some of the women that have made it to the top in the economics game, and, and frankly, they are rare, <laughs> um, would would absolutely be on my list. So someone like Janet Yellen, the, the US Treasury Secretary, Gita Gupta, who was up until very recently the chief economist of the IMF. I mean, they are extraordinarily bright women, extraordinarily resilient women. And as I said, you know, ex- extremely rare to have got there. I mean, and if, if we look in Australia, we've not had a woman head up, a woman economist anyway, head up any of the major economic institutions. So Treasury, RBA, Productivity Commission, ASIC. Uh, we now have a woman chair of the ACCC who comes from a legal background. 
So, you know, the, the glass ceiling's still very much there. I would say Karen Chester is fantastic female economist in Australia who I very much admire. She's been deputy chair of ASIC, deputy chair of the Productivity Commission. She's a wonderful economist and a real force of nature. So those are the sort of people that I really look up to. Have you ever had a career plan? Not formally. I mean, I sort of have this set of criteria that I use to think about what sort of jobs I might like. So I very much, uh, it's very important to me to do something that I feel is in the national interest or sort of pushing Australia in a more positive direction for its people. So that that's a really important motivator for me. I like working with good people. So um, jobs where you get to, to work with, with people that you enjoy spending time with and, and form really positive teams is important to me. And then finally, intellectual challenge. So I don't want to be anywhere where I just sort of feel like I'm going through the motions and treading water. So normally when it's when that third element starts to fall away, when you're feeling you've got this sort of sense of mastery or competence, uh, normally to me that's then it's time to move on. Uh, and then I'll, then I'll go out and sort of look at what's around, you know, applying those criteria to, to what the next move might be. I'm reluctant to ask this, but I can't help it. If you could choose one or two of those big reform concepts, what would be the first couple of things you would do? Because I know that's not a fair question. That's why I'm reluctant Yeah, it's, it. it's very hard. Look, if, if, if I had the reins of power tomorrow, you know, frankly, I would increase Job Seeker straight away because I, it just, it's, it's one thing that I think is very easy to do and it, it's incredibly hard to justify the, the payment as it stands, when you look at the statistics of people and children in poverty, people that are skipping meals, that, you know, can't afford to heat their homes, you know, all of those things just should not happen in a country as well off as we are. When it comes to kind of driving the economy forward and growing the pie, which is also critically important, I do think this piece around women's workforce participation, which is why I've spent a lot of time working on it in the past couple of years, is such a big lever. We're starting to see progress we know government's moving on childcare affordability. There's been recent announcements of changes to paid parental leave, which is about trying to shift some of those cultural norms and get men more involved in caring, which is the other piece of the puzzle. You know, I think that will be a really important economic shift. What change in a policy sense do you see you achieving in the next? And I'm thinking about, I guess, the lifetime of a change of government. So it's not so much about the colour of the government or the priorities of the government, but we've got a new government that's looking at doing a whole bunch of things. What sort of policy changes do you see on the horizon for the country? The ones that you think we are likely to move more rapidly on than perhaps anyone reading the newspapers might be aware of right now? So I think something that's clearly on the government's mind and, and rightly is the sort of the longer term budget position. So, the, you know, there are a lot of structural pressures on the budget and that's going to put pressure on this government and, and future governments to make difficult decisions on, on both revenue and, and spending. So I think we probably might see some movement on the, the tax front. You know, these are very hard things to do, but 
you know, unless we want to leave a very difficult situation for future generations, it's conversations we have to have. So I think that is very much going to be on the agenda and, and we're, we've got some work underway looking at the options and what might be some of the least bad options to try and repair the budget. So I think that's something we'll definitely hear about this term. I think transition to net zero is, is just such a mammoth policy task that, you know, it, it won't be one policy, it's going to be a series of policies. So government started with announcements of trying to reduce industrial emissions and the safeguard mechanism. There will be a, a you know, a number of new policies, I think, that go to emissions in other sectors during the course of this term. There's been foreshadowed a move to universal low-cost childcare, early education and care. Huge policy change, frankly not one that can be done overnight because it is, uh, it will require such a expansion of the sector. We have to make sure that quality is maintained. We have to make sure the government's getting value for money. You know, there's a whole lot of things that, that go into that. But, you know, I think that could be a really transformative policy change to come. And then there's a whole lot of other areas actually as well where, where things are changing. Government's looking at the migration system and we think there's just a lot of scope to reorient that towards, you know, better targeting younger, more skilled migrants, which will have all sorts of spillover benefits for the economy. Looking at the primary healthcare system, how do we make sure GPs are affordable and accessible? You know, that's a big reform that we're doing some work on. So there are big policy issues on so many different fronts that are in the pipeline and they are all things that Grattan will, as either had a lot to say on or will have, uh, have more to say on in coming years. Do you sleep at night? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not enough, according to my phone. But <laughs> <laughs> Is that just because you can't get to bed or when you get to bed, your brain doesn't stop? I need uh, to know. It's a distinction. I'm, I'm the, uh, so I go to bed quite early. I'm the 3am I'm the wake up person. Mm. Although I just read, uh, just read a study that suggested that's actually very normal and that we shouldn't worry about it. Apparently humans have evolved to have a wake up at 3am. I didn't know you lived any other way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly but the way to live. Before I had my daughter, I, I was an, an epic sleeper. My final question is, just listening to you, how do you manage the the pushback and not seeing change quickly enough or, you know, someone not moving with you? How do you manage an obstacle to getting change? Oh, there are so many obstacles to, to policy change. And I mean, I'm, when I worked at the Productivity Commission, which was my first job out of university, the, the chair there, Gary Banks, said, you know, in policy, change comes in, in decades, not, not years. So, you know, you've got to think with that long-term horizon. I'm a little more impatient, so um, I like to, to see wins um, I can tell. somewhat uh, sooner than that. But, you know, you think about what the obstacle is and, and how you can try and work around it. Sometimes you can't, but, you know, so one common obstacle is there'll be vested interests that are going to try and run interference on change. So what do you do? Then we would probably focus on trying to put information out there to correct claims that are being made, win public hearts and minds. So on some policy work, we're, we're very much out there in the public domain trying to shift opinions and then the politicians follow. In some other areas, we, we might actually just be more directly talking to, to public servants and, and politicians because the kind of the public 
piece isn't so important. So it really depends what the obstacle is and then you're going to think about the way in which you might counterbalance that and you keep at it. Over time, you build up this series of issues that you care deeply about and you just keep chipping away, chipping away and hoping that someone will make the decision that will push things in the right direction. I think that is probably a, a more general approach that you can take to your life and work. Do another degree. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, we're absolutely fantastic to talk to you. It's a, it's a joy to have you in the studio and to touch base since the Jobs and Skills Summit. Impressive work, really keen to see how the next few years roll at the Grattan Institute and, of course, in a public policy sense and see what happens in, in the country. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. And it is very exciting times in a policy sense. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. <laughs>